The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a session on investing in healthcare. My guest is Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, and we've got a lot to discuss with you. Right, Josh? Yeah, big day. Good to talk. Okay, glad to have you on Barron's Live. I thought we'd start today with a look at some of the large cap biotech stocks. Usually companies announce good news, the stocks go up. In this case, there's been a peculiar trend. Companies are announcing good news and the stocks seem to be falling. So what's that all about in the biotech space? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's particularly good news right, for investors in the sector. Right. You know, we, we keep seeing this. So just to pick out the particular instances that we're talking about, I believe uh, when when I was on this call with Ben a couple of weeks ago, we talked about some of these, um, or at least one of these, uh, Sarepta Therapeutics, um, it fell about 16% in the days after the FDA approved its new gene therapy for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Then after that, a company called Biomarin fell about 3.5% the day after it got approval for its hemophilia A gene therapy, and then like 2% the next day. The more recent one, um, last Friday, both Biogen and ASI, which are partnered on this Alzheimer's drug called Lakembi, both of the stocks fell about 3.5% um, on news of the approval. Um, now, look, in each of these cases, there are mitigating factors or, or I guess, reasons that can explain why investors may have, um, you know, sold off a little bit. Uh, you know, the Sarepta, uh, we did talk about this last time, but there's there, there was an, a sentence in the FDA's announcement that made clear that they could pull back the approval if a certain trial doesn't turn out right. Both Biomarin and Biogen and ASI have very challenging rollouts ahead of them for those drugs. But, you know, when you look at these together, I, I do think it points to something broader. I mean, you know, the, the these are the larger cap and the largest cap biotechs. And, and if you look at them and, and pharmaceutical stocks, you know, it hasn't been a great year. The S&P 500 pharmaceuticals industry group is down about 5% this year. You know, the S&P 500, the broader index is, is up um, 15%. Um, and I think it's time to think hard about what's going on here. I mean, clearly, there's not a lot of investor support um, behind the, the, the sector. I mean, obviously, we have the old tried and true, you know, buy on the rumor, sell on the news. And I guess that's what's happening. But it does seem like you know, underlying that is um, some broader uncertainty. You know, last year we talked a lot about how large cap biopharma represented this defensive play, you know, in a challenging environment. They um, they all have good dividends, you know, net, generally we don't think of them being, as being correlated to, um, you know, other, other sectors that might suffer during um, a recession. Uh, but that's changed, right? I mean, I think the the um, dividends are potentially less compelling given the um, higher interest rates available now. Um, and there's also a lot of worries on the sector. People are worrying about 
Medicare price negotiations, which we can talk about, um, FTC scrutiny of, of, of big mergers and deals. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, investors are, are uncertain or have soured on, on big pharma and large cap biotech. And, um, and th this seems to be one leading indicator, or at least a indicator here. The contrarian in me, Josh, says that's an opportunity. Right, and right. I, I would start looking for companies that have interesting pipelines and great cash flow, stable dividends, and um, pretty, depressed, pretty depressed stock prices. The moment the market seems only interested in big tech companies with an AI attachment. Right, but right. Someday things are going to broaden out, and these stocks, many of them are cheap. But thanks for giving us that look at the at the index versus the S&P points up what you've been talking about. So let's move on and look at Lilly and Nova Nordisk. These are two pharma companies that definitely defied the negative trend for this year and for several years, thanks to their hugely popular diabetes drugs, which are also, it turns out, obesity treatments. However, the stocks took a tumble earlier this week, surprising investors. What happened? Yeah, so as you say, I mean, the 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 biggest story in, in pharma investing over the last year has been the extraordinary rise in the stock prices of these stocks. I mean, Eli Lilly has a market value now that's larger than Johnson & Johnson's, which is just sort of remarkable given that Johnson Johnson's revenues are, I don't know, something like three times Lilly's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a much larger company by any measure, and yet Lilly is now the most valuable pharma company in the world. And and I think probably the second most valuable uh, healthcare company. And it's really all on the strength or largely on the strength of these obesity drugs. And we've, we've spent, said these names many times, you know, Lily's Manjaro, Novo's Ozempic, Wagovi. Um, and, and, and as, but as you mentioned earlier this week, there was a bit of a stumble, both Lily and Novo fell about 3% on Tuesday. And there were two bits of news. And one of them I think was quite interesting. Um, European regulators are uh, announced uh, and acknowledged that they were looking at a handful of reports of suicidal ideation in patients who took uh, GLP-1 drugs, which are the category of weight loss drugs we're talking about here. Um, particularly, they mentioned some drugs made by Novo. Um, the other bit of news is that Reuters reported that most patients taking these GLP-1 drugs for obesity didn't take the drugs for more than a year. This is based on some data that they obtained. Well, let's, let's take each of these stories one by one. Okay. First, this, this safety review. Um, so the, the EMA, the European Medicines Authority, said they're, they're going to take a number of months to look at this. It was set off by three cases in Iceland. They're reviewing about 150 reports. You know, I, I think three cases is not a lot, um, but regulators in general are on high alert for, you know, neuro or for uh, psychiatric safety issues related to obesity drugs because of an experience about a decade, decade ago with a totally unrelated obesity drug called um, uh, Rimabant. It was a weight loss drug. It was approved in Europe, not here, but it was pulled because of uh, discovery that it was linked to serious psychiatric side effects, um, including suicidal thoughts. So now I think largely because of that, the FDA does put suicidal thought warnings on obesity drugs. EMA does not, um, and but these drugs have been studied pretty closely for neuropsychiatric safety issues, and um, in general, they, they haven't been seen. Uh, so the GLP-1 drugs have been used for many years, both for obesity and for 
uh, for diabetes in many, many patients. And there have been studies looking particularly at, at whether they, they cause um, suicidal thoughts. And, and the answer has, has been no. However, I think experts say it's, it's just important to take signals that appear in the general population seriously. You know, one issue I think is that the, the trials often exclude people with um, certain conditions. And uh, when the general population out there in the world gets them, you know, maybe they could respond differently. So I don't think there's a broad expectation that this is going to be some lurking safety issue here. It's just important that when serious things come up, regulators look at them. So that's what's happening here. Um, the the other thing, the, the Reuters story about patients staying on the GLP-1s, that one I think maybe is what spooked investors a little bit more. Um, the Reuters got some data showing that after a year, as I said, patients who began these drugs for obesity, only uh, I think it was something like a third were still on it after a year. The idea, I, mean, I think... Was that because of side effects or was that because they... Well, the, Reuters didn't... The data Reuters obtained, it didn't ask. Mm -hmm. So um, investors were left to wonder, you know, there are known side effects of these drugs, notably nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. Um, and I think one question is, well, in the real world, does it turn out that patients who are on these for obesity simply aren't willing to put up with those side effects? And that would have pretty broad implications for um, the rollout of this class of drugs as obesity treatments. The other question is maybe, you know, maybe the patients hit their target weight and said, okay, we're done. And may, maybe if, you know, and, and that would maybe be less bad um, for investors. I don't think we know. Uh, and I think that that's just something that, that spooked people a little bit and uh, taken together, maybe fed into, you know, had people questioning, wait a second, uh, our valuations are based on extremely high estimates for what these drugs are going to sell at peak. And maybe, maybe we're not considering all the possible risks. You know, the big question now, and I think the thing that people are looking towards is this um, trial that Novo is going to report data on this summer. It's called the select trial. I think we've spoken about it before. It's, it's, it's probably the biggest uh, or the most discussed catalyst in pharma right now. Um, and this is a trial that's looking at cardiovascular outcomes for patients who don't have diabetes, who are on uh, Wagovi, the Novo, Novo weight loss drug um, for obesity, um, and to see whether, you know, with weight loss from Wagovi, or if you experience the kind of cardiovascular or cardiovascular health benefits that one might expect in someone who loses a significant amount of weight, um, uh, when you lose that weight using Wagovi. Um, Novo needs to prove this in order to um, get more insurance coverage of the drug and, um, you know, sort of prove that this is not a cosmetic treatment, but a treatment with health benefits. Um, you know, it allows them to justify the price if they can show that, uh, you know, it, it, it will improve general health and then therefore um, decrease other health spending. Um, and I think it's, it's, a positive outcome would be very positive for Lilly and Novo. A negative outcome, not so great. You know, other companies, including Lilly, are running similar trials, so it wouldn't be the end of the story. Um, but there is a lot of focus on this and a lot of speculation about which way it's going to come out. And I think I think investors are not at all convinced it's going to be positive. 
you know, there's no free lunch is the message of this discussion. Yeah. Well, it's just a complicated situation. And, you know, if this were yet another small product, we probably wouldn't be talking about this. But right. um, these these drugs have captured the public imagination, you know, begun to have a major impact, I think, on the way people on, on the sort of cultural conversation and also um, totally uh, upended the the market um, in terms of where people are putting their money in 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 the pharma sector. Right. They've really upended investor expectations. Yeah, so exactly. we will keep an eye on that Nova Select trial for sure. And for those keeping score, Lilly has a $415 billion market cap. It's not it's not quite up to the trillion dollar club we've been writing about, <laughs> but it's rather enormous relative to the healthcare space. So there was huge news in the Alzheimer's space last week, although it was somewhat expected. The FDA fully approved Biogen's Lakembi. Tell us what this means for patients, what it means for the company, and what it means for the stock. So as people will recall, um, the FDA gave accelerated approval to this this drug in January. Right, but right. because of um, the legacy <laughs> of the failed Agihelm rollout, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which manages the Medicare program, had put very strict limits on uh, how it was going to, or whether the conditions under which it was going to pay for this sort of drug. Um, and under the accelerated approval that this drug had before, they basically didn't pay for it. And now, as it turned out, as it turns out, they basically are going to pay for it now that it's fully approved. Um, there's a requirement that doctors submit data to a registry, but it seems like a rather minimal requirement. Um, so now the drug is available notionally. There's still big challenges here in terms of rollout and uptake. There's some complicated testing requirements. Um, you need to figure out if you confirm you don't have a particular gene before you can get the drug. Um, you need to be treated every other week. So there, there's a, 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 a challenging road ahead for Biogen and their partner, ISI, to get this thing um, you know, fully commercialized. But we are sort of in a new phase here. You know, We've been talking for you know a couple of years now about this new era of Alzheimer's treatments. And, and now we're in a position where patients actually likely will be able to access it. Um, there's one weird thing. So I, I guess we should say um, the Biogen and ASI partner on this, uh, Biogen took the lead on Agihelm. ASI has been the lead on developing um, Lakembi. Uh, I, I'm not sure I know the details of the split, but basically it's, it's a partnership between two companies. Um, the, the ASI executive who led the, the whole Lakembi approval drive, his name is Ivan Cheng, um, he announced just days after the approval that he'd be retiring. He ran the Alzheimer's unit for ASI and their U.S. unit. Um, he's the son-in-law of the company's CEO. The company's son is taking over as acting global Alzheimer's officer. I don't think investors really knew what to make of that when it happened. It that did seem to come as a surprise to the analysts and raise potentially potential questions about the speed of the launch. Um, just because uh, Cheng is a pretty known quantity who um, clearly Talk questions about the state of the family. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to speculate, but no. um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that was a sort of uh, raised my eyebrows over the weekend. Then I or earlier this week, I believe. Uh, is I shares fell a couple of percentages 
percentage points. On what about Biogen stock? What does this mean for Biogen? Yeah, well, look, I mean, Biogen has had this is in the midst of what we can, I think, optimistically call a turnaround. You know, this is a company that really made its name on some extraordinarily successful um, multiple sclerosis treatments. Um, that that business is declining for them for a bunch of reasons. Um, and they've been looking to move on and they've been really counting on Alzheimer's as one of the pillars. Uh, they also have a new depression drug that they're hoping in partnership with Sage called Zeranolone. Um, you know, I think so far, I'm not sure that sales expectations are extremely high for Lakembi. I think there's questions about um, how long it'll take to ramp up these sales. There's questions about competition from Lily's drug, Denanimab, mm -hmm. which could get approval at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a new CEO and this has been sort of one of the big goals. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the stock actually fell on the approval, um, but uh, shares are basically flat this year, um, mm -hmm. about 1% so far. I have two questions. The first is whether the approvals for these products, uh, Edgehelm and Lakembi and, and the attention they're getting, does that kind of stifle development of potential Alzheimer's treatments that approach the disease differently? Uh, you know, one of the arguments that we heard, you know, especially around the approval of Adjahelm, which had very questionable efficacy, was that by rewarding drugs that don't work very well with approval, you were... Um, you know, disincentivizing work on drugs that do work better. Um, and that, or that they argument, take a different approach. Or they take a different approach, right. Yeah. And we sort of now put a seal on uh, sort of a FDA seal of approval on these amyloid targeting drugs, uh, amyloid targeting antibodies. And that's what's going to get paid for by CMS. Um, that said, you know, I think if somebody comes up with a cure for Alzheimer's that's dramatically better than this one, I can't imagine they'd have much trouble getting it to market. Yeah. So um, uh, I think I think you can have theoretical debates here. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the right answer is. Right now, where we are is that this is the thing that works and um, it works a but little it bit. Sort of works. Yeah, it works a little bit. And the decision that the FDA has made is that we're going to offer it to patients and hopefully in clinical practice, it will have an effect that mm -hmm. um, that extends the, you know, the slows the decline of of real people. And you know, if that's if that's what happens, that would be that would be wonderful. Right. Another thing I've heard is that Biogen and maybe Lilly are testing whether these drugs could be given in a preventative way to patients in their fifties whose blood tests show that they have a buildup of plaque in the brain, and the idea would be that the patients with the requisite characteristics and screening would receive low doses over time to theoretically prevent the disease. I've used theoretically about three times here. So if you get the point, it's um, kind of a thesis that needs to be proven. But what are you hearing along those lines? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's actually Biogen and Lily doing these trials. I do know oh, these okay. trials are happening. Um, I mean, the idea, the idea is... There is there is a thesis that you know these drugs um, work a little bit in early stage patients, but if you get them into earlier phases of people who have not are not yet symptomatic, you might be able to have even more success in 
keeping patients, you know, delaying the onset, keeping patients from getting sick um, at all. I think that's sort of the dream here. Um, and, you know, just like in, in, in cancers, you get approval in the more acute phases, then you move into the um, adjuvant settings. Um, I think that's one idea about how this could develop. Now, I think the big problem there is that we've seen that these drugs have serious, significant safety issues. Um, so that's going to be the balance, right? Are you willing to expose patients to the potential safety risks who don't actually have symptoms yet? Um, I, I don't know enough about the details of the studies or whether they're offering maybe very low doses or something to try to mitigate that. I, I really don't know. But but I think that's the, the general balance that's going to have to be struck. And I think one of the uh, one of the lessons, I mean, the the the, the safety issues of these drugs have been, I think, really apparent. And, and so, you know, people are going to take them and people and the FDA has decided that people should take them, although they did put limits on who could take them because some groups are more prone to safety issues than others. But I think it's just, it's clear that people need to be monitored very closely and that, you know, these are serious medicines. Mm -hmm. We'll be watching that. It's definitely interesting and a huge development. We had a question from John who wanted to know if you could comment on the cassava Alzheimer's drug versus the Biogen methodology. And is SAVA, I guess that's the drug and alternative solution for sufferers. Have you looked at this at all? Uh, yeah, I don't think, I, I don't know enough about that. I don't think we should. Okay. Go there. Okay. Um, Good. I just wanted to pose the question. Yep. And we appreciate it, but not the right um, question for us. So let's move on to corporate MA. In all industries, it has been heavily influenced in the past few years by regulators and regulatory issues. And Illumina's ill fated effort to acquire Grail points out some of the regulatory risks. What's the latest in this saga? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this was a eye-popping number, not unexpected, but uh, just the other day, the EU fined Illumina $475 million. It, the figure was in euros, but that's the dollar figure uh, for closing the Grail deal without regular regulator approval. So people may or may not know uh, Illumina makes DNA se sequencers. They're the dominant player there. Grail does these blood tests for that can check for... Um, that they that they can check for early stage cancer and they run the blood tests on the Illumina sequencers and Grail was spun out of Illumina uh, and then Illumina decided to buy it back and um, they closed the deal before they had uh, FTC or uh, approval from the FTC or approval from the EU regulators. Now both EU and FTC have told them to divest this company and now in the meantime they've been slapped with this um, quite substantial fine. This is the latest development in what I think has turned into a disastrous saga. I mean, the, the stock is down something like half since they closed the deal uh, without uh, regular approval. There was an activist attack from Carl Icahn. Um, the CEO survived the attack, although the chairman didn't. And then the CEO uh, left just a few months or a few weeks after the vote. Um, uh, and now I think the question is, you know, how fast can they get away from this grail issue? Uh, what can they do to the revived shares? Um, what are they going to do to 
you know, return to growth here. I, it's like a very challenging situation and it's hard not to think that closing that deal without regulatory approval was a um, big mistake. I think that's the takeaway indeed. But it doesn't seem like on the face of it, it was an illogical thing for Illumina to have pursued. I mean, they were quite heavily criticized at the time. Oh, sorry, to, to buy Grail? No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, it was sort of weird, right, that they spun it out and then not so long after chose to buy it back. And I think they could have foreseen that there would be objections from regulators. Um, uh, you know, Grail is not the only company that's trying to do this. And all of the companies want to use Illumina's technology because Illumina is really the dominant player in, I mean, Illumina's done an amazing thing. This company has basically, you know, taken the price of DNA sequencing from hundreds of thousands of dollars to hundreds of dollars over something like a decade. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's um, one of the so, great innovators. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone wants to use their, their hardware. Um, and when you're in a situation where uh, everyone wants to use your hardware and you want to own one of the players, you know, I think you can predict you might have um, an issue with regulators. Now, I think they will say that the FTC, uh, that, that there was there's that they uh, antitrust law would not prevent them from making that acquisition. They have lots of claims against and arguments against the FTC and the EU. They're litigating all of this. But, um, you know, uh, right now, if you just look at their stock price, you can see that investors are not pleased. Right. I agree. That's what more needs to be said. So we've had a couple of questions come in about United Health, and I've got a question too. The company is reporting earnings tomorrow. Last month, this last month the stock was hit on news of higher medical utilization, which is a cost issue for UNH. What's the outlook for earnings, and what is the longer outlook, the longer term outlook for the company? Yeah, I mean the issue here is, but yeah, people I, I'm sure will know that Medicare Advantage is. Um, you know, sort of a, I guess a privatized version of Medicare, right? And uh, it's grown very popular with seniors and insurance companies love it and have been rushing into that space. Uh, UNH is one of the bigger players. Humana, I mean, Cigna, everybody's getting in there. Um, a month ago, a UNH executive at an investment conference suggested that utilization had been very high in Medicare Advantage, uh, particularly with like pricey, elective procedures, they felt like there had been a backlog that was clearing. So that suggests there's been a lot of costs there. And um, the stock of UNH fell significantly that day when they made that statement. Humana fell. Um, you know, UNH is a very tightly, um, it's got lots of moving pieces that all work together. And so they have their insurance group, which is called United Health Group. They also have Optum, which among other things, employs physicians. And some of those physicians have these what are called capitated relationships with Medicare Advantage patients where um, uh, they're paid basically to take care of the patient uh, overall rather than like a fee-for-service model. Um, but that just means that like high utilization hurts would hurt, would hurt the bottom line for the broader company in lots of different ways. Um, so shares are down 15% this year. Um, you know, the consensus estimate is... Six uh, uh, earnings of six dollars and one cent per share for the second quarter. Um, the big thing is, I, I think, I think that uh, UNH is the first, really, the first healthcare company to report 
Um, and it's one of those sort of bellwether stocks. So I think uh, everyone across managed care, but also healthcare generally is going to be listening very closely early tomorrow morning when they, um, when they say how they did. Right. And you'll be covering that for us, I presume. Uh, yeah, yep, yep. Okay. So check back on that. Um, there's also a question. Keith wants to know your thoughts on, in, on consolidation in the home health sector led by UNH's purchase of LCH. And it's also bidding for AMED. I don't know the name of the company, but that must be the ticker. CBS and Walgreen have been active in this area. Do you have any thoughts about the whole area? Uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, I mean, this is, I, I believe, driven by Medicare Advantage, just like a lot of other things going on in um, broader healthcare services. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of this in doing the same thing with uh, provider groups, doing the same thing um, with primary care. Uh, so I, I think it's a, an extension of a broader trend. Okay. Um, let's stick with listener questions for a moment. We had a question from Brian, how does government funding for innovative companies continue absent a pandemic? Uh, well, there's lots of ways in which the government funds medical research. I mean, you have BARDA, which uh, was very active during the pandemic in, in funding relevant stuff, but they, outside of pandemic environments, also provide funding for all sorts of, uh, you know, relevant drug development programs. I believe there's a current isn't there a current program to uh fund a um next generation covid vaccine um so uh i'm not sure but i know there are a lot of programs looking at other other potential viruses and and potential pandemics obviously yeah you know i think the you know, we have the president's uh, cancer moonshot program so lots right. of funding happens i think that um warp speed was a particular project for a particular time but um no the government spends spends a lot of money on this it's not something i've read about recently or have super well-developed thoughts on but it, it does does happen but brian should be relieved to know that there's plenty of government spending yeah. <laughs> on, on health care issues sure so we had a question from Diraj. he wants to know where pfizer goes from here yeah well um i don't i don't uh, pfizer is in the midst of a number of launches um you know they have a very busy year they've got an rsv vaccine um they've got uh yeah there will be a new covid vaccine um i don't have it in front of me but it's something we've been writing about a lot and we'll continue writing about a lot they you know they have this patent cliff that they towards the end of the decade that they're really aiming to um fill the gap that it will create and this year has been a particularly big one for new launches. So there's a lot going on there and um, you should look out for more. I think we'll be next checking in with them at um, their earnings, which are in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Robert wants to know which companies are the leaders in drug research and hepatitis B? I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. Good question. We'll come back to it on another call. Thank you. And John wants to know what are some of the new drugs being developed that have the biggest potential apart from the obesity drugs we've talked about and, of course, the Alzheimer's drugs. Yeah, I mean, you know, the area that gets a lot of investor attention and um, attention from the industry, I think, is 
immunology, you know, drugs for immune mediated conditions. It's been created some of the biggest blockbusters of the last decade or two. And um, you still see a lot of focus and attention there. A lot of unmet need even today. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, I, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, Alzheimer's remains an area of intense focus. Um, although obviously it's an area littered with failures, you still see a number of companies working there. And then, you know, every big, virtually every big pharma company has does a lot of work on cancer. And um, that's always um, an area that's continues to be an area that gets a lot of investment, particularly from biotech. That would, that would make sense to me. Um, I want to close with a look at a story that you ran recently. It looks at the, the discrepancy between costs for pets' drugs and costs for people's drugs. And why is it that they cost that the costs are so different, but the drugs work the same way. Yeah, so we had, I had this interesting experience. I was um, looking at Zoetis, which is a big animal health company that yes. spun out of Pfizer a number of years ago, and they have this drug called Cytopoint, and it's a monoclonal antibody for dogs, and it costs something like twelve hundred dollars a year, depending on how big your dog is. But we all know that monoclonal antibodies for people cost vastly more than that. And, you know, there's a Cytopoint treats basically itchy dog skin and dog eczema. Um, and if you are a human and you want a monoclonal antibody for your eczema, you might get Dupixent from Sanofi and Regeneron. costs $43,000 a year. Um, and that's not even an expensive monoclonal antibody. You know, like Umira costs almost roughly twice that. Uh, so um, the question is why? Like uh, Cytopoint and Dupixent and Humira are made basically the same way, you know, bioreactors, um, you know, a cell line developed based on a, a hamster embryo. I mean, these, these are, you, there's one way to make a monoclonal antibody, whether you do it for a dog or for a person. And yet the price is vastly different. And, you know, it's sort of a silly thing. Like, of course, the dog medicine is going to be cheaper. We don't um, have $42,000 to spend on uh, a dog. <laughs> um, it often seems people are spending right. more but, you know, it matters. I mean, you know, prescription drug costs, no one needs to be reminded, are a huge problem in this country. You know, 8% of adults in the U.S. skipped a prescription medicine over the last year because of its cost. The average net price of Medicare, sorry, that, that, that the Medicare prescription drug benefit paid for brand name prescriptions, for prescription drugs, more than doubled between 2009 and 2018. Um, and so the question is why, you know, and if you ask the pharma company like 10 years ago, they would have said it costs more to develop human drugs than it costs to develop dog drugs. And that's true, right? Like it costs about a billion dollars to develop a human drug, tens of billions of dollars to develop an animal drug. And that just has to do with how expensive it is to test. Um, and also, uh, you know, the, the, you just animal trials are just much simpler, um, obviously. But if you look at the academic research, it actually doesn't show a link between the R&D R&D investment and the launch price of a particular drug. And in fact, I think the industry has really moved away from this argument since about 2014. It, it, that's when Gilead got a lot of pressure for charging $84,000 for a course of its breakthrough hepatitis C antiviral. Um, it, it had bought that drug as part of an $11 billion acquisition that closed in 2012. They sold $12.4 billion worth of that drug two years later. 
So it was pretty clear. You couldn't say, oh, you know, it, it, it was our R&D cost. Um, so what the industry has done is really shift to talking about value, you know, the, the value, the, the amount that a particular drug saves the healthcare system. You know, if you take this drug, you don't have to be hospitalized and it's cheaper um, or the value of the life it extends. Value is tricky. And, you know, yeah, I can calculate yeah. value one way and they can calculate it another. And academics, if you talk to academics who are, you know, more critical of the industry, they'll say the drugs cost this much because they can. We're basically the only country that has no regulation of launch prices of of new medicines. Nearly every other country in one way or another, nearly other, every other, you know, peer nation in one way or another has regulations of drug pricing. And, you know, the way they do it is very complicated and it differs from country to country. But virtually no one else is like us, where there's no real government lever saying, no, actually, you can't charge whatever you want. And if you talk to the companies about this, they say, well, there are other players in the in the system who are exerting pressure on us. They're the pharmacy benefit, benefit managers who negotiate with us, um, for example. Um, but uh, those are the dynamics. And I, it's, it's, I, it was pretty interesting to look at. And it's a fascinating thing. So would the drug cost the same in, say, Europe or Asia? Where oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. Drug prices. Um, oh, sorry, the, the human drugs. Yeah, no, human yeah. drugs prices are vastly different from country to country. Right, but now, would they be closer to the animal drug price? Oh, no, I don't think that the actual cost of manufacturing has much to do with the price anywhere. Um, I didn't look carefully at drug no, prices. No, but I mean from countries. a regulatory perspective. Yeah, it, it, it really depends. Different countries have different mm -hmm. systems. You know, obviously we don't have a national health service that right. negotiates prices for all of our drugs. Um, so there, there's lots of reasons why our prices are different, you know, and, and also, you know, the list prices that we're talking about here, the 84,000 a year, or sorry, the 43,000 a year for Dupixent, which again, is not a tremendous amount relative to other monoclonal antibodies. Oh, no, no, I, in general, you know, the, the patient is not exposed to that price, right? Yeah. Your insurance pays your insurance. The, 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 the drug company is probably, um, paying some sort of rebate to your pharmacy benefit manager, which probably passes on some of that rebate to your employer, to your insurer. It's very complicated. Um, but, uh, but still, the, the, this is the price that gets fed into the system mm -hmm. and then taxpayers and employers and individuals pay premiums that support the system. Well, it was a good story. It raised an interesting question. Yes. So. Um, Thank you. Thank you for explaining that all to us. I think we're going to leave it there today. Thank you for explaining a lot of things to us today. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in for today's call. Tomorrow, Barron's Live will take a look at impact investing. Amit Bori, CEO of the Global Impact Investing Network, will discuss the latest research on impact investing with Penta senior writer, Abby Schultz. Tune in for that, please. Stay well in the meantime and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.